0: Hello, and welcome to Effective Conversations with Jael Finer. Each episode is a unique journey into a polarizing topic, where we go beyond the facts, explore the underlying emotions, and learn something new about ourselves. Today, I'm talking with Rick Lochtenberg. He is an environmental activist, entrepreneur, city councillor, and founded the Climate Caucus. We explore conflicts related to e-bike project and the transit project that the city is working on. Rick reveals the formula to get the local government to listen to you. Rick has a special ability to be empathetic to his counterparts even when they dehumanize him. A conversation worth listening.
1: I think what's important for people to understand is that they're, they're all interlinked, that, for example, with e-bikes, it's not about delivering a benefit to the people who are buying an e-bike directly. It's about getting them out of their car so there are less cars on the road so that we can focus our infrastructure investments not on maintaining roads, which ultimately do benefit the rich and instead prioritize other modes of transportation, micromobility, like bikes and walking, which benefit everybody. So it's kind of like, it's complex. And what people, and I think this is the problem with responding to a complex problem like the climate crisis, is that the solution is going to be complex and multivariable, but people don't understand that. They, they want to see a direct link between what you're proposing doing and the solution. If they can't see that that direct linkage, then it's then it's a bad solution. Then it's it's wrong, whereas that's never going to be the solution. You're never going to have something as simple as that. It's always going to be complex that this hopefully leads to that, which then leads to that, which create starts to create the system change that benefits everybody. But again, that complexity, you know, takes discipline and time.
0: Right. So with e-bike, it's not giving directly money or funding for poor people, but they will enjoy this initiative indirectly at first.
1: Yeah, but you also have all sorts of other co-benefits because if there are more people biking, then there's more political will and and social license. In other words, there's more support for creating active transportation infrastructure, bike lanes and improvements to walking. And it more people out of their cars means less cars, which means less pollution for everybody. It it means less investment into roads and road maintenance potentially, Um, which again, benefits everybody that frees up tax dollars to invest in stuff that will benefit everybody like bike lanes and
0: so maybe the question is long term versus short term. In the longer run, exactly. It's complex. Because it is like very direct benefit for the climate. But I think what he's trying to say that he's not supporting the poor people. That is not
1: It's not supporting the poor people right now. Right like short term. Yeah. And and again, but again, the, the, what he's not seeing is that you're never gonna be able to support the poor people right now. In a way that's sustainable like you have to create change the system the entire system to create the systems that will support more people poor people over the longer term like it's it's a whole system change that has to happen so again with with e-bikes the more people you get onto e-bikes you start to shift the entire transportation infrastructure to prioritize that kind of transportation, which is ultimately more accessible for everybody. It also leads to more investment in trans transit, which is directly targeted right. to poor people. Um, it also like by investing in e-bikes, the first step is for rich people, or at least people who own their homes, because that way we can prove the program. Like we can show that it works and, we have to focus on them first because we can secure the loans against their homes. Mm. So it's a, it's a, a more secure investment, but really that's only step one in a 15 step process. By the time you get to step three and the province looks at, or the federal government looks at the city of Nelson's program and says, Hey, that, that works like that. Look at the city of Nelson demonstrated that if you can subsidize e-bikes, then more people are likely to ride e-bikes, which is better for the climate and better for everybody. Let's roll out a federal or a national program where we subsidize bikes in the same way that we subsidize electric cars. Well, in that case, then it's not going to be tied to your home. So it can be available to anybody in the country. The, The province or the federal government can do that because they do taxation based on income and they're responsible for social programs and everything else. Whereas the city can't, the only way you could do it is by security to get against your home, um, and so therefore it's only for homeowners. And but the federal government or the province aren't going to take that leap into subsidizing electric bikes until they see that it works. And it's only municipalities like the city of Nelson.
0: When you say it's working, you mean more people buy the e-bike?
1: Yeah, it's a demonstrated program. They're like they look at it. The federal government, because they're so big, they tend to make big investments, right? Like they they, they have to focus on things that'll create big change across the country. Um, and so that means they're more risk averse. They're not going to invest in just every little yeah. thing that might right. work. Whereas cities, because we're all distributed and we're all doing things, you can a city like Nelson can say, hey, we have an idea. Let's try subsidizing electric bikes. We don't know if it's going to work. We don't know if people are going to want to do it, but let's try it. We can try it. And then if if it works, we're like, hey, it really works. Well, the federal government or the province, when they see, and and this is actually happening right now with our e-bike program, the province and the federal government are both looking at the city of Nelson saying, okay, wow, look at how successful it was in the city of Nelson. Let's develop a provincial program. So the province is actively doing this now. And the federal government are also looking at this too. Let's develop a federal program to subsidize electric Amazing. bikes because it's been proven to work in the city of Nelson. So that's how it... Yeah. You know,
0: the poor people will be the one that uh, being hurt the most from climate, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, in, in, in some ways, one of the ways we sold the Nelson e-bike program, at least the staff, one of the ways I pitched it was as a solution to our parking problem and pollution downtown to say, you know, the more people we can get onto e-bikes, the less likely they're going to drive their car, which means there's going to be more available parking and less, less pollution downtown. So it's just a, and, and I mean, the, although the parking doesn't necessarily benefit poor people certainly having less traffic, car traffic downtown does for, for the pollution. And just for the safety, you know, it's, it's way better yeah. if you have people walking and biking. It creates a community more too. safer and more enjoyable, enjoyable community.
0: community. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's for the e-bike. And the last time we talked, you mentioned that, th- that there is some friction around few of the projects that the city is working on like the transit and the fire mitigation clear-cut above the cemetery. And I wonder how much is it a hassle for the city, those objections? And do they stop you from moving ahead with those projects? Um, no, you you will still do that.
1: No, no, we can, we can still move ahead. Um, what it, it makes it more difficult. I mean if you have anything that has broad public support it is much easier to to, to move ahead with. Um, and so so typically if, if there's something even if it's a really good idea and it's and and council and staff believe in it, if there's a really strong public backlash mm-hmm. against it there's a really strong chance that it doesn't go ahead or that it gets delayed. Um, and then if something is, you know, questionable or, or there's some uncertainty in staff or in, in council and there's a strong public backlash, then that can kill it. And it doesn't even get the chance of getting further development. So it certainly has an effect. And I think that's a generally a good thing when the public's informed the problem is on a lot of issues they're pretty complicated and the public doesn't have time or interest to understand all of the linkages and the complexities Um, and so often the voices that are have the most sway are the ones directly affected by whatever the thing is and that creates an issue of nimbyism or not in my backyard so that the loudest voices in opposition tend to be the ones that are heard and tend to speak for everybody else so even if you have a small percentage of the people that are against something if they're passionate enough they can kill it because they can create the impression that a much bigger population is against it
0: that's very powerful what one person can do.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. And in general, and, and we've seen this on, on, say, the transit issue, just a few people against it can raise a lot of other people. They can, they can spread either misinformation intentionally or not, or they can tell a story or suggest a story that will get a lot of other people angry or passionate. Um, the problem with social media, I think one of the problems with social media, if not the main problem is that strong emotions, particularly anger and fear are more infectious. They, they spread faster and we're sort of tuned to hear a story that will get us animated. So even if we don't, you know, really care or have any sort of, stake in an issue we can be we can be activated pretty easily by somebody you know spreading a story that that creates anger and fear and that that way like one person or even or four people or five people can can activate 10 times that many and that's enough to kill the, idea
0: or the initiative that's
1: enough to kill an idea or something in a
0: So when the city gets this uh, kind of backlash from the citizen, what is the process to deal with it? Well, the
1: city tries to, first of all, it it tries to get in front of any potential backlash, Mm -hmm. tries to anticipate who's going to be against something and then engage with them ahead of time, like do public engagement, talk with them um, so that they fully understand what's going on. And... That's difficult because you know we don't have a large staff. You know, it's we're very short on resources and we we you know we try to do a lot with as few people as possible so that you know taxes can stay relatively low. Every time you every time we hire a new employee at the mm-hmm. city of Nelson for example, it represents about a 1% tax increase for everybody. So every new employee equals 1% tax increase. And people do not want their taxes raised. They can't afford it. Many people are on the line already. Um, And so, you know, we are very understand that, you know, for the sake of trying to make life affordable for people, we try to hold taxes at zero or, or as low as possible. Therefore, we're not inclined to hire new people. So we tend to run staffs that are as lean as possible, which means we can't engage with the public as much as we want to. Yeah. So for example, the city of Nelson does not have a, a a communications person. We have people who do communications, but we have no dedicated communications person whose job it is to communicate to the public and engage with the public. We probably should, but again, it's that, like, do we hire a whole other full-time person and, and do another tax increase? So things we don't, we're not totally successful at communication and public engagement. Oftentimes we do our best and with what we have, and it's not good enough.
0: So the first thing is to foresee a resistant, what next?
1: Yeah, the next step is to, you know, like, advertise and promote to to cast as broad a net as possible to tell people, Hey, everybody, this is what we're doing. If you have any problems, reach out to us, contact us, come to a public meeting, that kind of thing. Now, most people don't. In fact, our public meetings, even though they're advertised and promoted, get very few people, like one or two people. Um, And so it's really tough
0: to engage the people. Yeah. Why do you think this is happening? Because I think,
1: you know, there's a psychological principle about what's real to people. Like what, and given our busy lives and, and just how much we have going on, we tend to focus on what's in front of us, right? Like what am I dealing with right here, right now? And anything that's sort of far off is is not really present Mm -hmm. or important. And we don't even, like, even if we know about something, if it feels distant in the future, it doesn't even, it still doesn't feel real. But so as it gets closer, it becomes more and more real. And then it passes this point where it becomes real. And they're like, oh my God, this is actually happening. I kind of knew it was going to happen, but... uh, I didn't really believe it for some reason. Emotionally, I didn't believe it. Now it's real.
0: And now, I and
1: do. now I'm going to do something. And, and, and part of it too is, interestingly, and, I, and I've seen this happen a few times, is people will then rationalize why they didn't act sooner. It's like, well, I didn't think you guys were going to follow through with it. Or I thought you were going to do more engagement. Or, you know, it's your fault for not... You know, reaching out to me more, even though you did, and you said to engage and come out to a public meeting, that still wasn't good enough because clearly I didn't do it. <laughs> therefore, it, it therefore you didn't do enough, and the, the evidence is that I didn't do it. That's surprisingly and frighteningly common response that people have is they it is absolutely somebody else's fault all the time, particularly government. And so, you know, at some point, and I think staff, like as a politician who's newly elected, relatively new, I um, don't, this is all new. This is new to me, like that kind of response. I'm like, wow, that's crazy that, you know, that that's what you would think. But staff have been through this and tend to become more cynical over time. And they're like, well, you know what? We told people they didn't respond too bad for them. Uh, Also, staff. Aren't, aren't, don't have to be reelected, so they don't care. Their, their jobs are secure. Mm. <laughs> I mean, they, they care, but they don't really care. It's usually the, the politician's responsibility right. to care about that kind of thing.
0: What kind of stuff? Are you talking about permanent jobs?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're working in city government, you're probably going to work in city government or government for the rest of your life or the rest of your career. It's a really good job. It's pretty specialized. And the people who get the job tend to be really good at it. Like our staff is excellent. Um, and they enjoy it. It's satisfying work. It's meaningful. So they tend to do it for a long time. I think it's maybe we don't talk about it very much, but in general, staff and veteran politicians are pretty cynical about the public's engagement. about the public engagement like yeah that that again and it's it's no surprise in a complex world people are focused on their lives if things work that becomes normal like nobody thanks or very few people like thank the garbage men or the city manager yeah. for regular pickup of the garbage or or snow plowing or anything like that even though it's a complex system with a lot of moving parts and it's, it's an impressive machine. A city government is a really impressive machine. It's like, it's a large corporation that is functioning and doing a lot of jobs really well, more than any private corporation, probably. Like a city government has so much that it does and that people take for granted. So they get very little thanks. And the only time they hear from the public is when they're complaining, and generally those complaints are misguided because they're focused on a, this small issue without seeing the broader picture.
0: Were you like that as as a citizen from uh. the other side? Because you just you can still have this perspective of being from outside.
1: Honestly, <laughs> honestly, I I when I think about it. No, yeah. I wasn't. <laughs> I, I was... Um, I'm trying to think if I, if I was... I don't think I've ever complained ab- about the city. Um, I do complain or have complained about conservative governments, like the federal or provincial government. I definitely complained about policies that I thought were... misguided. Um, Yeah. And then I, you know, looking back on it, I don't, (laughs) to be honest, I don't think I was, I was wrong.
0: If you complain about the government, and then you become a politician, that's completely different responsibility taking than complaining and sending an angry letter, and staying in kind of complaint mode. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I I guess so. Yeah. No, that's, that's true. Yeah. Thanks for that. But I, and when I think about it, like I, I I guess I did. You're right. I did complain that the city and the province and the federal government weren't doing enough about climate change. That was, that was um, always, and the environment in general. So taking off the blinders for a minute and really looking at myself. That was something that always felt to me. And I did express it that we weren't doing it. Were you
0: expressing it to the counselors Uh, at that time or to friends? Yeah, no, to
1: counselors and friends and friends, but I don't think, I don't, I don't think, I, I guess what I was saying before about like, I don't think I've ever complained. I don't think I ever just was, nasty about it. Like I I think I did understand about the complexity of things. So it's not like remember say talking to Anna Purcell or Candace Batiki or Kim Charlesworth or Paula Kiss. These are former counselors in the city of Nelson about the environment or, or climate change. And I I think I related to them more as partners or as um, I like I was like, "Wow, the system itself is a problem." I didn't say target them and say you're an, you're an idiot for not doing something. I don't think I ever.
0: What helped you gain this perspective? It's unique. Most people will complain and blame, but they won't take responsibility. Or definitely, most people won't become politician.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 funny. I I often think of it or use that that metaphor that that really you know, you could think of society almost as as high school. <laughs> that there are there are bullies. Like it's it's basically it's a it's a a performance of our emotions. Like, you know, in high school there's so much raging yes. emotions and and we tend to adopt certain personas to just to fit in into this, the pressure cooker of high school and, and so on. And when you get into broader society, it's harder to see those archetypes or, or those things, but they're still there. We're just sort of playing them out more subtly, I guess. (laughs) Um, But yeah. And I, and I do think that there are people who, um, who, who, who understand that there's nobody in charge ultimately, you know, like the people who are in charge are just basically adults, you know, like you're, you're an adult. You're like, Oh, right. I'm responsible for making this society work. There's not somebody else up there Who's who's the principal or the the t- who's responsible? That's that's me and that's my job as an adult to to be responsible. And so going around and blaming things is kind of would be ridiculous. It'd be like the teacher in your high school getting all mad and and complaining about this person and the principal and the teach and the other student and the students and all the rest of it. It's just like that's not what an adult does. An adult sort of takes responsibility. And then there are the students who are just like rebelling and just acting out kind of all under the, um, under the protection of this belief that there's really somebody up there in charge, who's going to make sure that everything yeah. works. And I can, I can sort of act out my hormones with this, this security of knowing that the adults are in charge and they'll make sure that everything is working in the end.
0: You're talking about rebellious and, and teenagers and I'm thinking about a protest. Is it an action of acting out or it's an action that actually does something?
1: Uh, both. Both. Depends who, uh, who are you
0: inside? Like depends what you do with it.
1: Yeah, I think I think it is acting out, but um, particularly when it's young people, I think because they don't have the power or the experience, they can just basically say, I don't like this. What's happening? I don't like it. That's good. Like that's important information. And that that helps the politicians and the policymakers to get in touch with the world in a deeper, more richer way. Because, you know, once you're in in leadership or in power, you start to become disconnected from the experiences of, of everyone. And that's one way to effectively communicate what you're feeling. Um, and that many of the people who, who do protest, I think, are being adults, if they understand what they're doing, and, and then follow through with meaningful action. So in other words, it's like saying an adult talking to another adult and saying, I really don't like what you're doing here. And I think you should be doing these other things and I'll help you do those things if you need help. Otherwise, if you want to hear me and, and you're going to do it, I'm good. I'll let you be. To me, that's an adult protesting.
0: So when you protest like adult, it's more effective?
1: Yeah. That way is extremely Mm -hmm. effective. If you're a politician or or in government or really any position of leadership, you're dealing with so much complex things in your work, in your life. There's so many things going on. You're just trying to keep the system functioning, right? Like it doesn't, the system doesn't run itself. It takes work to keep things moving. And so... When you hear something from the outside, you're like, ah, shit, I'm full. All right. What's this over here? <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. Uh, you know, you just want to get back to your work because, you know, that's like enough. And so, you know, if this is kind of persistent, you're going to pay attention to it. But then if it goes away and then you can get back to doing whatever you were doing and, that, and then that's fine. You forget about it move on. But if it comes to you and it says, this is not working and here's a solution that, and you know, we're going to help you solve this and we're not going to stop until you, you know, you engage with us and, and solve this, then I will. And I'll be like, okay, well that's, I can take, you're being serious and you're offering me something I can do. I'll work with you and do it. That's helpful. So that's really, really effective. If you just, if you just come at me and you're, you're telling me, I don't like what you do. And I respond back and say, well, what do you want me to do about it? Like I'm, I'm full. Like I don't have any more time or energy or mental space to, to solve your problem. Um, and the person's like, well, too bad. I want you to do, I want you to change. The moment you go away, I'm going to forget about you. Cause like what else am I going to do?
0: Amazing. Right? So, so it's so, not just protesting it, and blaming and say yeah. what's not working. It's offering offering solution and also helping in implementation and understanding and whatever help the politicians need, which is a big thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a big difference
1: and, and and a persistence, right? It's a big. It, it's it's. I would say the most effective um, protest has two qualities to it. One that it's persistent. It, you just strongly communicate. I'm serious about this and I'm not going away until it's solved. Number one. Number two is, and I'm I'm here to help solve it. And so I'm yeah. going to sit here or stay here until you engage with me for us to solve this problem together. That changes yes. the world.
0: I wanted to ask you about this phenomenon that you kind of surprised to see that people agree with something, with an idea that the city has. They agree with the climate initiatives, but not when it comes to their backyard, not when you need to log next to their property or... Yeah. Can you say more about that? Yeah.
1: A good example is transit. Most people agree that transit, public transit, is a a, a common good. It's a good thing for the system because it means less cars on the road, which is great. Everybody likes fewer cars on the road. It means more mobility for poor people or people, it's just more equitable form of transportation for everybody. Um, And then obviously with that comes all the environmental benefits of of having fewer cars on the road, et cetera. Um, So that's good. Almost everybody agrees that's good. Um, what then, however, when you start to try to implement a transit system, it requires very specific decisions. Like for example, transits need interchanges, the place where one bus comes, some people get off, get onto this bus or get off that bus and onto this bus, and then go their separate ways. Like these interchanges are vital parts of a transit system. And but the people around that transit hub or interchange either love them or they hate them. They love them because they tend to be bustle areas of activity. So, you know, you got people around, you can sell more things, whatever. Um, or they're just accessible, right? Like if you live close to an interchange, you can go there and get, boom, you can get to a lot mm-hmm. of different places quickly. But people hate them for the same reason, like a lot of activity, noisy
0: and, and blah, smelly.
1: Blah. Um, they're noisy and smelly and, and so on. So um, so yeah, that's it. Right. I don't want an interchange. I like transit, but I don't want an interchange near me. Um, and yeah, or very less common, <laughs> much less common is I love transit and I want an interchange near me.
0: Okay, so let's dive in on that. The city chose the Victoria Street as the location for the interchange. Why Victoria Street?
1: Because a couple of reasons. Number one is for a transit interchange to work, it ideally needs to be as close to downtown as possible, where it needs to be close to where there's a lot of activity. Because, you know, you can imagine a city as like a hub, you know, and then a a whole spokes that kind of ray out from that. So because an interchange is also a hub, you want that hub to be okay. in the hub. I mm-hmm. mean, it, it, it makes sense because that's where people gather and that's where everything sort of concentrates or focuses. Um, so Victoria and that sort of all that area around Baker Street, that's Nelson's hub. So ideally, the interchange is in that hub. And interestingly, like a lot of things, it's kind of like there's tipping points that... It, if you get outside, just just outside of the hub, it will fail. Mm-hmm. Like, and yet if you just kind of cross the street, it will succeed. Like, it's 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 really the margin of error, you know, is can be very very small if you just sort of put it in just the wrong spot. Even though it's close, it's not close enough, and the whole thing will fail.
0: Is there going to be a bus to Vancouver too?
1: Nope. It'll be to Salmo, to Castlegar, to the North Shore, Balfour, Caslow, all around Nelson, up to Fairview and Rosemont.
0: So more buses than we have right now. Yeah, more buses.
1: So you can imagine a bus comes in from Trail, Castlegar, in, and then from that spot, somebody can go to Salmo or can get onto a different bus and go to the North Shore and to Caslow or up to Rosemont and Selkirk College and... And vice versa.
0: What about the location next to Scotia Bank when we have already buses?
1: It's too. It's too small. It's. It's like you can see it. Like we're adding an, an entirely. It's already too small. Like when you link up, and again, the thing about an interchange is that you tend to concentrate a lot of interactions at once, and then there's a period where there's nothing, and then boom, nothing. Boom, and so you do get this. Buildup of buses, all at the same time, or close to the same time, which makes sense. Like again, that's how the system works. It's supposed to function that way. So you need enough capacity to deal with that surge. You need to be able to accommodate, for example, five or six buses at the same time. And already we we don't have that capacity, and the plan is to bring on more capacity because we're adding a route to selmo mm. that doesn't exist yet and so it needs it need a place to grow and and that place is not it's it's not big enough also it's on a slope downward which makes it difficult for people you know in wheelchairs and and people who have you know challenges walking and stuff to make to get on and off the buses on that slope it's just very awkward. You ideally it's a flat space that's relatively open has broader sidewalks because you need to people to move around each other and all that kind of thing. And that yeah. And so looking and looking all around downtown considering all the options that spot was clearly not just the best but arguably the only spot that it would work
0: and what about the railtown area
1: the problem with that spot again when you think about convenience and and accessibility you want some place that ideally that people will bike or walk to get mm-hmm. on a bus and go because it's not just people making transfers but that they can kind of gather take their bike down jump on a bus go off or whatever um not only is that further from the hub of the city, but it's also requiring people to cross multiple intersections, one of which is mm-hmm. a highway. So if, if, for example, you have a kid and you're like, well, I, I want you to go down, catch the bus to go to school, to up to go to Rosemont or wherever. Well, you're not going to send your kid across a highway to do that. It's just not, mm-hmm. parents wouldn't do that and and the evidence is over shown over and over again that again those are it's too far the thing and and that could cause the whole system to fail it's not it's all about these sort of marginal incentives and and convenience which is largely about location is very important if you're just slightly even one block too far you'll have a huge drop off in people that will use it or see it as convenient. And then that could be enough to cause the whole system to fail.
0: And I guess if, if that fails, the city also loses a lot of money. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You would a lot of, yeah, totally. And, And then you create all sorts of other future costs as well, right? Like, if, if people are not riding transit, then they're either taking their cars, which means more parking and more road maintenance and all the re- more environmental costs. And, and the other thing about the, that location that we thought was was a good location was that there's a number of, of quick takeout restaurants around there. Takeout restaurants, like quick food restaurants, like pizza and Mexican burritos, that kind of thing. That's the kind of business that tends to thrive, do really well around interchanges. Um, you know, over and over again, you look around, it's like, yep, that's those businesses tend to congregate. They, they come yes. to those locations. Um, number one. Number two is it's close to quite a few healthcare providers as well. And so if you're coming in from Selmo or from the North Shore or wherever, it means you can Get on the bus, come in, and go see your doctor or your dentist or your, you know, physiotherapist, and they'll be right there. You know, quick and easy access. Interestingly, it's those two businesses that saw that were strong opponents to the burrito and the pizza, um, the transit exchange being there. Burrito, the pizza, yes. like El Taco and and Thor's Pizza, as well as the doctors, uh, the health. That they don't want the well.
0: transit there.
1: And no. And their argument was that it would be, make it harder for their current customers to access their businesses because currently their drive. customers yeah. drive. And so they, 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 they're imagining like, yeah, people come in, they drive in, they pull in, they run in, they grab a burrito and then they go or a pizza and go, or they drive in, go to the doctor's office, and then go. And that's true today. But in the future, ideally, people are coming in on the transit and then going to those places.
0: So potentially, it might even benefit their businesses, but no guarantees here. And hopefully, their clients will adapt.
1: Yeah, exactly. The people adapt and we are also going to work with them so that even their current customers, we know will figure out ways to add more parking so that their current customers will succeed. The other, the other concern that a few of the businesses have is around deliveries so that, you know, they have the delivery trucks come in and and they're afraid that with the changes, it'll make it harder for the delivery trucks. But again, we try to communicate with those businesses, but they don't really Mm. trust us. Um, We try to communicate to them that we'll we'll come up with a solution that works so that their delivery will still work.
0: Did they say I don't trust you?
1: They yeah, basically. They either say I don't trust you or I don't see it. Like I can't see how that's gonna work. So because I can't see it, I don't trust that you can see it. And, and just even without spending a lot of time figuring out, our staff had come up with a couple of options, which showed that, okay, there's flex, there's enough flex in the system to, to make something work, you know, whether it be around scheduling or, or something, we'll, we'll work it
0: out. I wonder how you feel personally about that. Are you frustrated that there is not full support on the project? it's a little
1: frustrating, but I understand it. Like, like I understand NIMBYism. Like I, I totally get it. I, I feel it. Like I would feel it too. Um, you know, if you're, especially if things are working well for you and you're pretty happy, you're like, I like the way this is functioning. It's smooth. It's, I'm doing well. Don't change it. I'm, I don't have enough mental space to deal with change because I'm putting all my mental space and keeping things going as they are. And that's, that makes sense. I I get it. Um, What frustrates me particularly is if I feel like that um, the anger, like it's like you guys are too stupid to see what you're doing. Like if that's the posture that people are where people are coming from that gets frustrating to me. And again, I also understand it. It's, it's almost like when you're driving down the road and I do this too, when I'm driving, when I'm in my car, I don't see other people in, I don't see humans in other cars. I see cars. And so in some sense, when I get behind the wheel, I become a bit of a psychopath. Like I, I, dehumanize every other person around me simply because i can't yeah. see them they're not people they're cars
0: so why are they I'm driving like, like that mm, yes a jerk
1: for why are they driving like that yeah. they must be a jerk <laughs> they're not they're whatever, whatever they spilled yeah. coffee and they're like ah or they just could be anything if i were truly empathetic i would be a lot more calm and i and i think that's just how people are. Like our initial reaction is like, if you're busy doing stuff and then suddenly you hear, oh, they're going to build a transit exchange out in front of my business. You're like, those jerks, they're so stupid. Why would they do something so stupid? And so that's, and and yet, and this has happened, if I then come into their store right in front of them and say, and, and they're looking at me, they're not going to say that. They're going to be like, Oh well I understand it's complicated and, and I know and I know you're trying your best and all the rest of it. And and so that gets me frustrated but I also understand it I would probably be the same way or and, and I am the same way in different circumstances like when I get behind the wheel of a car
0: that's so true it's so easy to dehumanize others when they're where they're holding position like politician or police officer or being behind the wheel do you think that after you had the face-to-face interaction with them their feeling around that changed
1: yeah temporarily yeah temporarily and it's the same way like if i pull up to the you know up to a, a stoplight and i look over and i make eye contact with the person like oh they're human they become human again but then they drive away. That lasts for a little bit, but then slowly they dehumanize again and now they're a car. They're not a human anymore. And I think it's similar. Like I'm, I've, seen, I've, I've experienced it where the, the half-life of my humanness, like I've seen it go away <laughs> pretty quickly.
0: That makes me think about the pattern I recognize in myself when I don't speak with someone for a long time. I feel disconnected from them, even if we were good friends and this disconnection experienced as fear and anxiety. And so the mind at this point come up with an explanation and those explanations sometimes is the dehumanizing, like they're not human. We dehumanize them at this point because I feel anxious. So I have to give myself some explanation. And I think the root of it is, is unsecure attachment or unhealthy attachment with our parents. So today as adult, we're kind of reliving this trauma with different scenarios. I I
1: wonder if I, 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 sometimes I haven't really figured this out, but I wonder about the role of anger in being a human and how that our anxiety and fear um, one of the you know responses that allow us to cope and and engage with that fear is anger and and I wonder sometimes what anger does to us and our perception of other humans like it seems to me that anger also dehumanizes yep. people like um, and almost necessarily so like I can't fight somebody if if they're human really truly human to me and sometimes i need to fight somebody or or you know evolutionarily i would have needed to fight some other one to survive and so we get angry the other person dehumanizes and then that allows for all sorts of other bad behavior that can come from that
0: it gives legitimate to hate and, and violence yeah Anger reminds us uh, that we have boundaries, and this is where I start, this is where I end, and I want you to respect my boundaries, and it's very important, uh, a very, very important feeling. Yes. So boundaries between us mean that you're different than me, and when I feel unsafe, this different and unknown is scary, and anger is usually covering up the fear. Many people also use anger as a form of motivation. Motivation to act, to protest, to save the climate, to save animals, and so on. And they hold on to the anger because they believe that if they let it go, they will stop doing the right thing, like Garth was saying in the interview. So that happens because it's very complex to feel angry and love at the same time. And especially hard when when I have an idea or solution and I think that my idea is the right one and you are wrong. So you have to be stupid not to see that I'm right. So anger can cover up the pain and the fear that I feel for my business. I put so much time and love and effort in my business and now you're going to ruin it and you're going to hurt it and I'm afraid to lose my business. I'm afraid that you don't care enough because you say, I'll figure it out. There's so much uh, solutions, but you don't really understand. You don't really care. So I need to fight. I need to protect myself from you. So most of us believe that um, that being vulnerable won't help us to get what we want. So we hold on to the anger and we present logical argument that cover up usually our real feelings
1: yeah it's yeah yeah that's really that's really helpful thank you and and does anger it seems to me that anger also there's a hormonal you know cocktail or something that comes with anger that feels good like we get a rush of uh, endorphins or adrenaline and, and other things that make us feel powerful and some I imagine that some people almost require that power to act. Do you know what I mean? Like they need to be angry to get things done that they believe need to get done. Is that, is that true? Or is that the true in some cases? Do you think?
0: I think it's the way we grew up. If we saw that our parents angry to get things done, this is what we associate as Mm. this is the right way to act. There's no other way. If you grew out in this kind of household, and this is what we saw, it's our automatic because we kind of it's in our DNA to to do that. And you need to have a real mm-hmm. trauma or a real you know a real need to change yourself to see there is another option because this mm-hmm. is the way you act for so long. Yeah, keep like being angry and then be, things being right. done. And the, like you said, the louder you are people hear you and, and there's results. You know, you see?
1: Yeah, there's, there's a really good series about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls from the 90s. The Last Dance, I think it's called. Highly recommend. It's really good. One of the things that I loved about it was how Michael Jordan, one of the reasons why he was so successful as a basketball player was because his his competitiveness, his competitive spirit was so high. And that competitive spirit was in many ways based on anger. And he would get angry. Like he would figure out ways to make Mm -hmm. himself angry with his opponents as a way of getting himself up, his energy up for the game. And I found that like I, I can see that how other people, successful people in business and certainly in zero sum situations. Where it's like, I win, you lose, and that's it. That those people see that there is a competitive advantage to being angry, for all sorts of one, more energy, but also dehumanizing the other, so it justifies doing things to the other person that you know you wouldn't do to somebody no. you care no. about. Um, and I think I worry when I when I saw that, I I, I worry that that spirit or the lessons learned from michael jordan if we then applied that to society oh, yeah. in general it essentially rewards psychopaths and and society would fall apart
0: <laughs> uh, this is in a way the society we live in yeah as far as you know my my understanding about emotion when you're hooked on the on emotion whatever emotion it will be but especially anger you are mm-hmm. cutting yourself from your wisdom and from creativity you're so hooked on something mm-hmm. and holding on to your idea. So you're completely missing all Mm. the rest of the information you you can get. And maybe there is something so much more simple, you know, just below your nose that you can figure it out. But you're so hooked on on being right and angry and prove the other is wrong that we miss these opportunities. There's so much opportunities if if we let go of this fight and... You know, breathe yeah. and see what's the possibilities, lots of possibilities. And I think when we remember yeah, that, we can say, so remember right. there's like, it's motivation to act, but we can see that so many action when we are being angry is a waste of time. It's like running in the car yeah. when, they, yeah. when the brakes is on. We're doing so much and yeah. we're so tired in the end of the day, but nothing is being done. Why? Because we're not doing the right actions. So yeah. this is being angry... Yeah. Some people it work for them but i think most of the people you know people that may be listening to, listening to that it's not working i try to be angry about your yeah. kid not yeah. working <laughs> no
1: <laughs> no no
0: working about on the city not working it's so true. it's not working and we we think yeah. that it's working because we're doing something but we're lying to ourselves if you look closely it's not really mm-hmm. bringing the result we want it doesn't bring our wellness that yeah. we want, not cooperation, not connections.
1: Yeah, to- t- totally. And you could see how, for some people, it gets an effect, but it doesn't get you the result you want. It, it could be like some people caving into you temporarily, they're giving into you, you know, right now in this moment, but in the but in the back of their minds they're thinking about ways to exactly. sabotage you later like okay well i'll give it to you now but you just wait i'm going to figure out a way to
0: so true sounds like the root of the implementation gap
1: yeah well a- another interesting example of that might be when you when you're having a debate with somebody right you're you're essentially it's a fight it's a com- it's a it's a battle of ideas And if you come into this zero-sum, like I'm going to try to win and therefore make you lose, sometimes what happens, I've found, is that I battle somebody's um, worldview or I attack their ideas and they'll retreat, they'll retreat, they'll retreat. But at some point, they're going to stop retreating and they're going to retrench. They're going to build a new fortification somewhere else but it's not like i've won i've just forced them into a position that they're going to and then i go away and meanwhile they're just going to build up reinforcements in a stronger position that ultimately makes them stronger it's different but it's stronger in in some ways and and unfortunately it could be even it could be like much worse like I, I remember having a debate with a, a a friend about vaccines and 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 all the rest of it, and they were concerned about uh, vaccines, and that was pretty much it. They were just concerned, and you know I I kind of attacked them and positions, or attacked yeah. the the argument, their their positions, and they retreated and retreated, and they got to a place where. It wasn't about vaccines anymore. It wasn't about the pharmaceutical industry. Now it was about science. And their position was that science was just another religion. And they didn't have that position before until I attacked them and kind of forced them into that position. And once you're in that position of, okay, well, science is just another religion. Whoa, that's a, oh man, that's a much harder and in some ways a stronger position for them to to be on because science is yeah. kind of like another religion like it it is an epistemological framework like it's it's a belief system and it's well supported and all the rest of it's got a long history blah blah, blah. but it's kind of it is kind of like that and so I was like whoa once that happened I started to think well I'm not helping <laughs> I didn't I didn't convert them I just push them into a place that in some ways is worse than they were before. From my, my perspective, it was worse.
0: Yeah. People get to their <laughs> yeah. uh, positions from life experience and stuck emotions mm. like trauma.
1: Right. So if I right, went to right, a doctor right.
0: and I, doctors around during my life and I had a health concern or whatever, and nobody helped me. And then I found some Chinese doctor that helped me. So my view about life mm-hmm. that all this medical system is bullshit. Only alternative medicine is mm-hmm. good. Nobody will tell me what to do with my body, and no, no way vaccine, right? Because I've experienced that. Yeah. you can't you can't convince me. So now even yeah. if you exp- show me the best facts, I have experienced this on my body. No doctor helped me. No one diagnosed yeah. me. No one gave me the best medicine. Like you yeah. know, like so it's so hard and. Instead of talking about the experience, the past experience, because it feels like irrelevant, but this is facts. Like I show you facts, I show you research, mm-hmm. but it is relevant because this is where people based their opinions. It's going there, not right. because of the research. We don't have opinion because we have a good research. Yeah. Like yeah. you said, it's too complex. Exponential graph. It's so, yeah. it's so complex. Ellie explained me again and again yeah. and again. Yeah. And, and like, it just doesn't get inside your heart. Like I understand, but how yeah. to, right? You can't, can't feel it. Feel like it. you said, it's so far yeah. away, this exponential graph. So I see this uh, virus, yeah. but it's not here. I don't care, right? It's yeah. like, yeah. I, yeah. I can understand yeah. this exponential graph with, with money. This is This is complex exponential graphs, go figure so my initial and inner response was it doesn't make sense to me and if it doesn't make sense therefore you're lying or therefore those facts are are fake or whatever I, i can explain myself but if you are an aware person you can explore this, ah, it doesn't make sense feeling. And you can say, what is this? Why am I I'm feeling like that if I'm being presented with some actually fact it does make sense? So what is this contradiction? And how can I solve this contradiction in me? So I have an inner conflict right now that is very uncomfortable to stay in. That makes me ungrounded, frustrated, fearful. I have to solve it. So the easier way out, you're lying, you're wrong, I don't trust you. That will fix my discomfort right away. But that's create a new set of problems of polarization, hate, misunderstanding. And this is where we are.